Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is part five of a six-part series. If you've missed the first few episodes, go back and listen so you'll be caught up on the story up to this point. In today's episode, we're going to look at why it matters that this is the first industry to sue big oil and what this case and this sort of David versus Goliath struggle might mean for other industries. Previously on Drilled. If you know that your product is going to destroy the world, you have to be yelling that from the mountaintops uh, frequently and constantly. The West Coast Dungeness Crab Fishery off the California and Oregon coasts is one of the most sustainable fisheries in the world. Crabbers throw back females and juvenile males, so the stock is self-replenishing. Repeated closures since 2015 are unusual in U.S. fisheries, which are typically shut down for stock depletion. And while that can be exacerbated by climate change and warming oceans as well, the case here is a little more direct. Warming oceans grow more algae, more algae means more demoic acid, and that's what's resulted in the repeated shutdowns for this fishery. The paradoxical nature of this is really challenging to accept that we would be looking at closures in an otherwise healthy fishery, whether it's driven by demoic acid or other factors. To close a fishery that's doing well is something new in American fisheries management, and we need to treat it differently from the kinds of closures that we've had to institute when climate forces or overfishing have resulted in stock depletion. We have to treat it differently. It's a new phenomenon. It's completely different. That's Noah Oppenheim, head of the Fisheries Trade Association again. He repeats something I heard a lot talking to crabbers. We've done everything we can. Something needs to give, especially now that the season is being squeezed at both ends, making it harder than ever to make a living. This is the story of two industries, one struggling to survive, the other the most powerful in human history. The outcome of their battle may well dictate what path we take in dealing with climate change. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled Season 2, Hot Water. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. 
Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. With Tomoic acid delays at the beginning of the season and whale closures at the end, fishermen are worried that their fishery could disappear altogether. They've already seen a slight decrease in demand thanks to all the Tomoic acid closures. It's not great as a food supplier to have a lot of news about your product being unsafe to eat. Crabber Ben Platt points out another issue with these annual shifts to the season. We crabbed that year until the very end of the season, which in District 10 is June 30th. Mm-hmm. And then it takes a couple of weeks to get your gear. We had to truck our gear back home. So by the time we got salmon trolling, it was already middle of August. So essentially salmon season was just about over by the time we started. Normally we would be, if we were going to go salmon trolling, you want to be finished crabbing like in mid-March, maybe at the latest, because you, you need to haul your boat out of the water and you need to you know put all your gear away and if you're out of town like we are now you have to bring everything back and most people do their major projects in between season but in order to do that you have to be done with your crab season before we even started on these demoke acid years last year we didn't start until february 7th or something like that this year we started january 22nd up here you can't get a full crab season and a full salmon season or if you're a shrimper you can't get a full crab season and full shrimp season in so yeah the democ acid thing it throws everything off we don't like having more than a month or so at the most of downtime mm-hmm. and it's not just for us it's also for our crews we can't keep good crews which are essential to doing well with these fisheries if we can't keep them employed essentially year-round. None of the crabbers that I talked to does less than two different types of fishing. Many were salmon trollers before the state's dams made that fishery a little harder. It used to be like 80% salmon income, 20% crab, and now, and then it, it got flipped on its head, and, and now it's 100% crab and yeah. albacore on my new boat. So, I mean, what that's done is it's put all this pressure into the crab fishery. And then because the crab season shifted, even if fishermen made up income later in the season on crab, they lost it on whatever their other season is. Typically black cod, rock cod, salmon, tuna, or shrimp. You might expect crabbers to be pessimistic given the endless roller coaster of their industry. And they are, but they're also weirdly optimistic. They take risks and bet on the future of their industry constantly. Ben is building a bigger boat right now. He's hoping to get another few good years in so he can retire. We get overextended too. I've done it myself over and over again in my career. You know, I'm doing it right now with the new boat, you know, taking a big financial risk. So with all this stuff going on with whale lawsuits and demoke acid and everything else, and there's casinos up here. And when uh, one year when I was up here salmon trolling, somebody's like, do you go, did you go? No, I, I said, no, I don't gamble. I'm not a gambler. And he, and he said, yeah, you are. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, you're a commercial fisherman. You're constantly gambling. And, and that's true. I mean, we gamble with our money all the time and take risks, you know, to try to grow our business. Down in Morro Bay, Lori French is also starting to think about retirement and hoping that fishing remains an option for her son, Lauren. 
we're kind of the last of the hunter and gatherers and we need to do anything we can to protect them. Part of this sort of realistic optimism they have has to do with how close they are to the resources they depend on and how well they understand them. These are communities that are constantly thinking about resource management. It's an almost daily concern, which also makes them an interesting counterweight to the oil industry. On one side, you've got a working class community that carefully stewards the resource it depends on. On the other, you've got a well-funded industry that's also resource dependent, but focused on extracting as many resources as possible as quickly as possible. As the first industry to take on big oil, crabbers are navigating uncharted waters. But Noah says he hopes it encourages other resource-dependent industries, everything from agriculture to the outdoor industry, to take a stand, too. They're both extractive industries. The key difference is that ours is a renewable industry and theirs is not. There's a finite life to their industry. We can keep eating Dungeness crabs forever, and we hope to. The business-to-business side of things is a new angle. There are so many other renewable industries, industries that can persist forever as long as we have a habitable planet. That will be damaged irrevocably if we don't fix this problem, if we don't stop right now the rampant, combustion of fossil fuels and take drastic steps now to curb climate change. We know it's it's already impacting society in deep and extraordinarily damaging and expensive ways. Industries need to step up. Ours has. Others will, I have no doubt. This is precisely why the oil industry may well fight this suit even harder than it has the various other suits brought against it by states, cities, and counties. I reached out to ExxonMobil, Chevron, and Shell for comment on this suit, and only Chevron got back to me. Of the Crabber suit in general, spokesman Sean Comey wrote, quote, It's always regrettable to be in a legal dispute with a customer, especially considering how much diesel the fishing fleets purchase. Now remember, this was the issue many fishermen themselves had with the suit initially, as we covered earlier. You know, my initial reaction was just like a lot of other fishermen. It's like, well, I have a diesel engine in my boat, so why why would I want to sue a fossil fuel company? But eventually, they realized that while, yes, they are customers who purchase diesel... They are not companies who decide what sort of fuel is available for purchase. You know, I think what it boils down to for me is that I've done everything I could do as a fossil fuel burning boat operator, commercial fisherman to minimize my carbon footprint. A lot of us have done this and we've modernized our equipment at our own, a lot of our own expense and time because we're trying to have as little of a carbon footprint as possible. You know, we're doing whatever we can, but there's only so much that we can do. We're not the fossil fuel companies. We're not the big energy companies. We're not scientists. We can't figure out how to make a hydrogen cell or something that'll power our boats. You know, we're just using what's available. Chevron's Comey went on to say that the Crabber suit uses the same arguments as the other climate liability suits and that the claims, quote, defy state and federal law. Last year, Ted Boutros, Chevron's attorney, who has also been the preferred spokesperson of all the oil company defendants in previous suits, said this to me about climate liability cases in general. We recognize that global warming is a serious issue and and poses serious problems that need to be confronted on a global basis. But this kind of lawsuit is counterproductive and it's just legally flawed. ExxonMobil has been aggressively countersuing in its responses to other liability suits. The other oil companies have been less inclined to countersue. 
And Chevron's Comey is right. This suit doesn't allege anything different from those suits. It's the plaintiffs that are the key difference. They cannot so easily be brushed off as out-of-touch environmentalists or money-grubbing trial lawyers or government bureaucrats seeking to annoy industry with too many regulations. In fact, they're an industry that complains themselves about regulation. Lori French talks about it frequently. Regulations and there's always some crisis that they're pushing for in the name of save the environment. The drift gill netters, there was less than 20 of them in the state and they closed the fishery. And it's just like, how much damage can less than 20 guys make? It's hard for the oil industry to use a standard industry versus the environment or industry versus the government sort of defense against another industry, and especially one that holds a lot of the same views about both environmental groups and regulations being annoying and bad for business. And one filled with working-class Americans who have been materially harmed by inaction on climate. Even conservative judges who have mostly said things about how climate change is just sort of a necessary component to progress might struggle to issue a judgment that says, in essence, this industry's right to make its shareholders more money trumps that industry's right to exist. Lord help the judge who says, like Lori's sister did back in 2015, that crabbers like Jeff should just fold up the fishing business and go get a job at the hardware store. It's like, how long have you known my husband? <laughs> no, he's never worked for anybody except for he worked for Kentucky Fried Chicken when he was in high school. Oh, no, he's fished his entire life. That's the way he is. Um, he works hard, but if he had to punch a clock, I'd kill him. Still, winning the suit, even keeping it alive past the oil company's motion to dismiss, will be far from easy. Several climate liability cases are in the courts at the moment, along with fraud probes of ExxonMobil by the states of Massachusetts and New York. And oil companies have made it clear that they won't go down without a fight. They've countersued nearly everyone who has sued them, and Exxon in particular is pursuing a First Amendment defense, arguing that the First Amendment gives it the right to say whatever it wants about climate change, no matter the consequences or whether it contradicts their own internal research. We covered this First Amendment defense in one of the bonus episodes in season one of Drilled. It's the latest in a long string of attempts to reshape the First Amendment into a blanket protection for corporations. Here's constitutional law expert John Enton to explain. The basic question is, do corporations have legal rights? And the answer is yes. The Supreme Court has said for a long time that corporations are legal persons. But in the commercial speech area, generally, the the Supreme Court has said that false or misleading speech is not protected. That last bit is where the rubber really meets the road in these climate liability cases. If plaintiffs can prove that oil companies were making false or misleading statements about climate change, then their First Amendment defense is likely to fall apart. But of course, that also depends on the judge and their thoughts on corporate personhood. Meanwhile, the crabbers still have to deal with the impacts of the suit brought against them by environmental group, the Center for Biological Diversity. They worked with the Department of Fish and Wildlife and the Center for Biological Diversity to settle that suit and keep the fishery from a total shutdown, but things are still pretty dire. Ben Platt described it as the biggest threat to the fishery since he was a kid. The season will shut early every year until the state gets a federal permit that allows fishing to continue alongside endangered species. 
There's a push toward ropeless gear as a solution, but fishermen are concerned about the cost, particularly given the hit the industry has taken in recent years. And there's still plenty of disagreement within the community over how to handle all of this. It's an industry and a community that's on the ropes. And hey, we've lost industries before. Sometimes that's just what happens. Things change, the economy needs different things. But climate change has come for fishermen in a way that should be a warning for every industry. Just as it continues to impact cities, to flood entire Midwest towns off the map, or engulf California towns in a single fire. It's coming for a community or an industry you care about too. It's only a matter of time. And who we hold responsible for that, how we adapt, that could have a real impact on how we address climate change in general and whether we're up to the challenges ahead. Next time on Drilled, we'll look at what's next for crabbers and what this fall's season might hold. There's a bigger discussion that needs to continue about what does it look like to help our rural coastal communities become more climate adapted? What does it look like to have the right wharfs and infrastructure for chillers and boats and how to prepare them for what might be the future? We'll be back with another episode in this series next week, but if you can't wait until then, or you just want to support independent climate reporting, consider becoming a Drilled member. Just go to drilled.supportingcast.fm to sign up. That's drilled.supportingcast, S-U-P-P-O-R-T-I-N-G-C-A-S-T dot F-M, F like Frank, M like Mary, to sign up. Thanks for your support. We really, really appreciate it. Drilled is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. The show was created and reported by me, Amy Westervelt. Rekha Murthy is our editorial advisor, and additional editing for this series was done by Julia Ritchie. The series was mixed by Bill Lance. Music by Elliot Peltzman. Season 2 cover art was drawn by Angela Shea. Drilled is supported in part by a generous grant from the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. You can listen and subscribe to Drilled on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, don't forget to give us a five-star rating. It helps us find more listeners and combat pesky climate deniers. Visit our website, drilledpodcast.com, for behind-the-scenes photos and additional information about this series. You can also drop us a tip or story idea there and sign up for our newsletter. Or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Amy Westervelt. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.